if you're going to walk this walk the way Yeshua walked, is you cannot any longer afford to see Yeshua as a man who came to earth as God. You have to see him as the man he was. The man who sleep like you sleep. The man who eats like you eat. The man who agonized like you agonized. The man who had family just like you had family. There is not one instance in Yeshua's life where he operated as God. Not one. Everything he did, he did as a man. You got to get that in your head. Because that's the only way you can come to the place to where you will believe what he said, the works that I did, you shall do. As long as you put him in God category, you will always distance yourself from him. You don't do it intentionally, but psychologically, that's what happens. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. The sins of the world made it impossible for there to be righteous fellowship between Jehovah and his creation. Jehovah's plan to redeem man and his creation, providing a pathway back to him, had been put in play after the fall of man in the garden and materialized at the cross with Yeshua's sacrifice for the sins of the world. In the final chapter of Matthew's gospel, all seemed to be lost as Yeshua's disciple, who had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, returned to normal life in despair and unbelief of what Yeshua had taught them about what would happen three days after his death. Yeshua's resurrected life was committed to empowering his disciples on how to live in the kingdom of heaven as a man on earth, how to please Jehovah through obedience to his commands, how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and how to make disciples of the nations as he had discipled them. The message title in this podcast is Disciple the Nations. So let's study. Right now, we're going to go into Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the last few verses of Matthew 28, and we're going to talk about disciple the nations. Now, it has taken a lot for me to establish a environment where we make it clear that we're not coming to church. We don't call this a church. Now, I believe and always have believed, even when I was a Baptist, that the church as a Baptist was never the building, it was the people. And people have a tendency to look at the building, the place of gathering as the ecclesia. It's simply an assembly. When this building, as I've said so many times, is empty, it's just a building, it's brick and mortar. In the beginning, In the first century, the people would come. They didn't have all the accoutrements that churches become today. They didn't have the praise team and the choir and the praise dancers and all that stuff. What they had is 
teachers who stood up in the midst of them and taught them what the Messiah had taught, what they had witnessed, what they had experienced, and they were empowered to go forth and communicate what they had received from their teachers. Today, it seems to be more entertainment and fellowship than instructions and going forth because the whole purpose of us gathering is to be instructed so that we as his representatives, as his ambassadors are empowered to take this message of the kingdom to the ends of the world. And I can tell you there is no greater time that the world need the answers that we have, the instructions of the almighty and the kingdom gospel. If we're not equipped to do that, we won't do it. And the reason why many aren't doing it is because they aren't equipped. It's about for too many having a good time, having fellowship. See you next week and we'll do it all over again. Yeshua did not deal with his disciples that way. And as we're going to see at the end of this particular time with them, he's going to tell them to go and do with others as he had done with them. Now, this is an important piece because I'm giving you the end at the beginning. The bottom line is where this is going to lead us is that we now have the responsibility to take the gospel of the kingdom as we have been discipled, if we've been discipled, and to go and disciple others. I come here for the purpose of doing the job that I have been given by the King of Glory. So who's here and who's not here is irrelevant in a sense to me because I'm not preaching to who's not here. I'm speaking to those who are. Everybody right now is where they want to be, except the people who are incapacitated in places that they may not want to be, (laughs) but have no choice but being there, like jail, like prison, like hospitals. Everyone who has the capacity to make decisions and who is mobile at this very moment (laughs) is where they want to be. So with that said, let me minister to y'all. The sins of the world made it impossible for there to be righteous fellowship between Jehovah and his creation. Redemption was about much more than simply saving man from his sins. Mankind had lost its way with no hope and no way to return to Jehovah in righteousness and fellowship with the creator. Jehovah's plan to redeem man and his creation, providing a pathway back to him, had been put in play after the fall of man in the garden and materialized at the cross with Yeshua's sacrifice for the sins of the world. In this final chapter of Matthew's gospel, as we looked at last week and what we're going to see some today, all seemed lost for his disciples. It's interesting to note, and the only way you really grasp this is you commit your mind to consuming the information, then thinking about it. And from my perspective, actually putting myself in that 
particular situation to kind of conclude or get some idea of how I would respond and understanding why others responded the way they responded. This morning, as I was studying and thinking, even as I communicate and, you know, if communicating with ministers, because people sometimes wonder how I come to some of the conclusions that I come to. And this morning, it's like I'm reading the Bible and words seems to highlight themselves on the page. And it dawned on me that when I search, when I study, when I read the Bible, especially as I'm trying to put together what the Almighty would have me put together to present to you, that there are two leadings that I find myself in. One is the words that are on the page, the things that, you know, kind of rise up off the page for me. And then it sends me on this search to try to understand, to grasp what this is illuminating itself for. But then in the process of doing that, there's this leading of the spirit because some things just don't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And I need to search it out because before I can present it, it's first got to make sense to me. And before I can walk in it or live it, I have to understand it. Because I'm not just studying and searching the scriptures for the purpose of teaching and preaching. I'm studying and searching the scriptures for the purpose of living. If the word is a living word and what father says is true, then the more I apply his truth in my life, the more I'm going to become like him. If the goal is to become like him, I cannot become like him by having the information and the knowledge of him and not applying that information in my own life. What I will have is a double-minded man. I have the knowledge and the information, but I'm living a different life. So I'm living a double life claiming to be a son of the most high. And there are too many people living double lives. It is as if society forces us in that situation when it's not society's fault, it's our fault. See, I too have a wife. I too have sons and daughters. I too have sisters and brothers. I had parents who were alive and people who have expectations of me. And the pressures of those expectations have a tendency to force us to comply with other people's expectations and opinions where in some cases we realize in the process that we may be grieving the almighty while trying to appease someone we love. If you have sons and daughters who do drugs and they ask you for money, (laughs) if you have individuals in your life who are wasteful of resources And they're looking to you for resources. See, if somebody will waste their own resources, what do you think they'll do with yours? And if what you have is for kingdom purposes, can you use what the almighty has given you for kingdom purposes and put it in the hands of somebody who, you know, is not going to use it for kingdom purposes. All of these things we have to wrestle with and deal with as we walk. 
and live. And the only real example we have in the Bible and in life, if we are believers, is Messiah himself. Now, Messiah trumps my bishop. Messiah trumps my apostle, archbishop, pope. Messiah trumps Trump. So anyone that I show any manner of allegiance to that is not committed to him and his ways forces me to be double-minded because I've got to overlook some stuff. (laughs) I got to ignore some stuff to follow some people. I got to ignore some stuff and overlook some stuff and compromise in areas to be in relationship with some people. And when I do that, I lower my position, I lower my standard, I come under another anointing or another spirit, and I now am diminished as the man of God that I claim to be at that moment. I can choose to do that, or I can choose not to do that. And I'm always reminded of that very moment when Yeshua's mother and his brothers came to him and wanted to have a meeting with him. And he looked at his disciples and said, who is my mother? Who is my brother? That had to have been a very heart wrenching moment for him, but it wasn't. Why? Because he was committed to doing father's will. When you are committed to doing father's will, there's some things you just going to have to get over. And one of the main things you're going to have to get over is what other people think about you. If you're tied into what other people think about you, you're already in trouble. I've concluded that, hey, you know, if my ways please Jehovah, then he can deal with them. They may not like me. But I'm going to hold firm to what I believe and not compromise what I believe. Because let me tell you something. When you compromise yourself for people, especially people who are not committed to this, you will find yourself compromising yourself for nothing. (laughs) Let me get into this. Teachy. Yeshua's resurrected life was committed to empowering his disciples on how to live in the kingdom of heaven as a man on earth, how to please Jehovah through obedience to his commands, how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and how to make disciples of the nations as he had discipled them. One thing you're going to have to do if you're going to walk this walk the way Yeshua walked is you cannot any longer afford to see Yeshua as a man who came to earth as God. You have to see him as the man he was. The man who sleep like you sleep. The man who eats like you eat. The man who agonized like you agonize. The man who had family just like you had family. There is not one instance in Yeshua's life where he operated as God. Not one. Everything he did, he did as a man. You got to get that in your head. Because that's the only way you can come to the place to where you will believe what he said, the works that I did, you shall do. 
As long as you put him in God category, you will always distance yourself from him. You don't do it intentionally, but psychologically, that's what happens. And then don't let somebody think, oh, 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 you think you Jesus now. Because, <laughs> you know, what's your going to be your response? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, wait a minute. Hold it. Hold it. Why are you responding like that? No, you're not him personified, but the word that became flesh, that's who you're supposed to be. That's who you're supposed to be. The works he did, you shall do. If he did it, you can do it. Or you should be able to at least come to the conclusion that, yes, I can, because I still haven't been able to walk on water yet. <laughs> and every now and then, I still try. Every now and then. At this particular point, it's probably one of the I haven't been able to raise the dead either. Not a person who has expired where they came back to life. I've prayed for people who've been healed. I've prayed for people who've been delivered. I've seen miracles, but there are certain things that I have not seen. And even though I've not seen it, I don't give up hope that the day will come when it will happen. And I can't afford to give up hope. Because if I do, when the opportunity presents itself, I'll already be convinced I can't do it. Verse 11. Now, I really need you to pay attention because there are things here that is going to require critical thinking. It's going to require critical thinking. And that's something for some reason Many people have a problem with when it comes to read the Bible. <laughs> it's like you're supposed to think, but you do. And that's the reason why we take the time to go through this so that you can begin to see things from the perspectives of Messiah and his disciples and at least be able to connect these dots together so that you're not stuck in a way of thinking that hinders you in your actions. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. Now, I touched a little bit on this last week. I'm going to touch some more on it this week and then move forward. So here the question is, going where? Now, when you think of context and the context principle, as we've said several times that Matthew, the Gospels are not in chronological order. One event doesn't necessarily happen immediately after another event, and there are distance because we're going to see that even in this passage from the time Yeshua tells a woman to go and tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee to the time he went to Galilee, that time has expired. And from the time, according to Matthew, if we look at what Matthew says, we would come to the conclusion that Matthew and his disciples were in Galilee when he ascended. When the fact of the matter is he wasn't. Hold that thought. Going where? As the women were going. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came. And so I asked the question, where were they going? 
In the previous verses, here's what Matthew said. Verse five, Matthew 28. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, fear not ye, for I know that you seek Yeshua, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him. Now, this is what Matthew says, right? Keep in mind as we move forward how all of this unfolds. In verse 8, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Yeshua met them, saying, all hell. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Yeshua unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. So the angel says this. They're going Yeshua meets them and he tells them to go to Galilee. Is that what the scripture says here? The first time they saw Yeshua was not in Galilee, but in Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he tell them to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee and that's where they'll see him? That's what he says here. Now, Luke captured the event this way. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing in the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. So when is this the first day of the week? Now, we've already identified that Yeshua was crucified on a Wednesday before sunset. So the first day of the week, Wednesday before sunset, Thursday before sunset, Friday before sunset, Sabbath before sunset. And then the women come early that morning before daylight in one version after sunrise in another. So they come and he's not there. Now Mark says early on the first day of the week when he resurrected. Well, did he resurrect on the first day of the week? Because when the women came to the garden tomb, he wasn't there. When did he rise? So when they came, they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. Now, according to Matthew, there was an earthquake. The storm rolled away. The guards fell as dead men. Right? And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord. Now, Matthew is the only one who records the guards, by the way. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek you the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified in the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the 11 and to all the rest. So we see now there's a gathering here. Because by the time they return from the sepulcher to tell the disciples, they're gathered, and then there's some other people gathered too. So it's not just the disciples that are gathered. Now, this is important. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them. Now, in one version, there's two. Here, 
There's Mary, Joanna, Mary, and other women. You see how by looking at the various narratives in the various areas that the picture becomes fuller, we're not limited to a certain way of thinking. And as the picture becomes fuller, one would ask oneself, well, why didn't Matthew report that? And why do Luke feel a need to report it? Now, here's what we come to conclude because the scripture reveals to us that the person who most likely of Yeshua's disciples that were witnesses to what happened this day was John. Matthew didn't show up at the temple. I mean, at the sepulcher, it was Peter and another disciple who seemingly one of them outran each other. Now, John records that, but that tells us that his disciple, John, most likely went to the sepulcher. So how does Matthew get his information? If he wasn't there and he didn't see it, how can he write about it? Just like Luke, except Luke lets us know that he did a thorough investigation. Why? Because he's going to write a report to Luke in Luke to a fellow by the name of Theophilus, who he's going to write a detailed report of everything Yeshua did and said, even though he wasn't there, he did a thorough investigation with all of the eyewitnesses. And now he can write Luke. And then he gives us the report in Acts beyond the resurrection and ascension. And this is another reason why we're going into Luke. So now we see it wasn't just Mary and the other Mary that there's Mary, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and other women that were with them later that day as two disciples, one named Cleophas was on their way to Emmaus. And we're going to see Luke is going to identify him as Simon. Now the average person will go to Peter as if Messiah revealed himself to Peter, but at this time, Peter hasn't seen him. Peter, remember, he ran to the sepulcher. He was gone. He returned back. Now he's with the others. This Simon we're going to see is most likely as the various Simons there, Cleophas's son, most likely, the two men on the road to Emmaus. So notice They referenced what the women had said earlier that morning. And behold, two of them, Luke 24, 13, went that same day. What same day? The day the women reported back to them from the sepulcher that the Messiah was not in the sepulcher. They haven't seen him yet. That same day, they left to go to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three, four three score furlongs and they talked together of all these things, which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Yeshua himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, what manner of communications are you? These that you have one to another as you walk in are sad. So now we see these men was leaving Jerusalem and they're sad. And they're having some conversation about all the stuff that's happened. Now, the reason why they're sad is because they had put their faith in Yeshua and now he did. 
That's why they said. And one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Now look at their response. They're walking. They're sad. Everybody, according to them, know what just happened. And they say to him, what? Did you just come up here? You haven't heard what has happened? Are you the, only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things which have come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, what things? Now, he didn't say no, but what things? Why? Because he wants them to tell him. And they said unto him concerning Yeshua of Nazareth, which was a prophet, was mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And get this, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. So their hope is, is lost. They're sad. And then if that wasn't enough, besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. Now, this is the same day they were at the sepulcher. They came back, told them what had happened. And now somewhere during the course of the day in the later morning, early afternoon, they started on their way to Emmaus for whatever reason we don't know. But they were leaving Jerusalem. And so it says they were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher. So now we see Peter and possibly John, because up to this point, only the women had seen it. And found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. So they went came back and said, you know, what she's saying is true. He's not there. Where he's at, we don't know. Whether he's resurrected or not, we don't know. And then Yeshua said, you fools and slow of heart. Now, first of all, remember last week, we showed you three occasions where Yeshua said what was going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. The son of man is going to be handed over to the chief priests, to the rulers and to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify him. But guess what? Three days, three nights later, he's going to do what? Resurrect. Three times. Now, these individuals who've received the report from the woman on their way away from Jerusalem, hear this report. They're sad because they had had hope that he was going to redeem Israel. And then they claimed to have seen a vision, <laughs> said he was resurrected. They'd seen him. But when the men folk went and came back, they agreed that the tomb was empty, but he wasn't there and they couldn't testify as to where he was. Now, all of this plays into Matthew's narrative, but we're going to see that there's large time space between these verses, almost 40 days later that same day, because now they're on their way to Emmaus, right? 
He has a conversation with them. He reveals himself and then he disappears. Guess what? They get up immediately and return back to Jerusalem. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened up to us the scriptures and they rose up the same hour returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 gathered together and them that were with them saying the Lord is risen indeed and had appeared to Simon. Now, again, when you look up that Simon, you'll find that there's about six different Simons in the New Testament. There's Simon Magus. There's Simon the leper. You sure had his lunch with. There's Simon Peter. There's another Simon with them. There's Simon the brother, half-brother of Yeshua. And then there's Simon that is um, Cleophas' son. Cleophas has got a son named Simon. Now, it's more than likely that that's the Simon who Cleophas could testify because he's saying the Lord is risen indeed. Now, by one person's testimony, it would be hard for them to believe. Now, they got the women's testimony, but for some reason, they didn't believe the women. And so now they got Cleophas' testimony, and Cleophas is saying and he's appeared to Simon. So I'm not the only one who saw it. Simon saw it. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking bread. Now they are talking. And as they, they thus spoke, Yeshua himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, peace be unto you. But they were terrified, affrighted. Now they see and stuff. They have it a vision, <laughs> but it's a, it's an actual eyewitness that he's in the midst of them, which they're going to need because as they go forth and people accuse them of making stuff up, they can say assuredly, no, we saw this with our own eyes. We heard this with our own ears. We're not making stuff up. We're not creating some narrative. Back to verse 11, Matthew 28. Now, when they were going, Behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. As I stated, Matthew only tells of the posting of the guard. Now, I want to go back and then bring you forward. Verse 62, Matthew 27. Now, the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate. What day was that? What? The first day of unleavened bread. Now, it's important for us to understand that because in Acts chapter 12, when the Catholics take Passover out of the Bible and put Easter in the Bible, they leave in the context, these were the days of unleavened bread. The definition of Easter is what? Passover. Pesach. Easter has no history. At least not in the Bible. It's got its own history, but it ain't biblical history. <laughs> and then it says, now the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees on the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees on the Sabbath, 
Say that again. The chief priests and the Pharisees on the Sabbath came together unto Pilate saying, sir, we remember that that deceiver said, now, I don't know if Pilate was outside the, uh, the hall, but remember the last time they wouldn't go in because they didn't want to be defiled. So either he was outside or he was in, doesn't tell us. They said, sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. So they've already got the narrative. They've already got the narrative that somebody's going to steal him. So I'm going to tell you something. There are people, and if you listen to people, I remember, and I can confess my own faults, but I remember in life, in that old life, before I committed a crime against God, I already had my excuse. If I get caught, this is what I'm going to (laughs) say. Now, I know I'm the only one. And typically, it had to be a foolproof excuse that could not be researched or invalidated. No witnesses. (laughs) But these guys already got their narrative because they first lay this narrative down on Pilate saying what he said, but we want to make sure that what he said don't come to pass. So we don't believe there's going to be a resurrection, but Hey, just in case his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he's risen from the dead. Why? Because guess what? Now this is a sad commentary. This is a sad commentary. The chief priests and the Pharisees remembered he said he was going to resurrect his own disciples. That's an indictment. So they say he said, he told them, you know, his disciples, they're going to come and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last era shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. That's a number of guards. These are not the temple police. These are not temple guards. Rome, Pilate, is releasing a guard. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, just in case you didn't know, if they had stoned Yeshua, they wouldn't have to be getting permission from the Romans. But now, the moment that Messiah became Roman property. From the time they turned him over to Rome, they no longer had any jurisdiction. It would be like you trying to go and bust somebody out of jail. For them, they couldn't just go and and do what they wanted because now this is Roman. The guards, Rome has given him the body to Joseph. But now they go to the Romans because the Romans has a place in this. And so they go and set the watch. The watch is this, the Latin origin custodia. It's used of Roman soldiers. And if you look at the miscellaneous here, a Roman guard was made up of how many people? 
4 to 16. 4 to 16. So there is at least a minimum of four people, four Roman guards at this tomb, and a maximum of 16. We don't know how many, but we know a minimum and we know a maximum based on this particular Roman word or Latin. Matthew later follows up by telling of their bribe from the elders to report that Yeshua's disciples came by night and stole his body. Now hold, hold your thoughts to that whole Roman guard deal. And when they were assembled, verse 12, with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Now, let me just give you this so that you can keep a point of reference. There was an earthquake in the previous chapter that when Yeshua resurrected, that people came out of the grave. Righteous men of old, righteous individuals of old came out of the grave. The Bible tells us this happened after the resurrection. So Yeshua resurrected and they came up out of the grave. This earthquake is when it occurred. There was an earthquake when the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Now Yeshua resurrected before sunset. The Roman guards is witnessing all of this. When? Before sunset. The question is, are they at the sepulcher when the woman gets there or the women get there? One thing's for sure, they never mentioned them. So when did they go into the city? Verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Something's missing. I'll get to it in another place. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. They took the money and did what? They started spreading the word. When did they start spreading the word? After they took the money. Okay. Are you making the connections? The Roman guards leave the tomb after the stone had been rolled away. Yeshua had resurrected. They go into the city after the resurrection and before the first day of the week when the women came to the tomb early that morning. They go into the city, they're given money, and now they begin to circulate the rumor that his body has been stolen or at least moved. So when the woman comes there, remember last week we looked at this, she asked, where have you taken our savior? Where have you put him? 
Tell us where he is. They came to prepare his body for burial, but his body had already been prepared for burial by the woman with the alabaster jar, because when Yeshua recognized what was happening, he said, she's preparing me for my burial. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had already prepared him for his burial because they put spices and all that and then wrapped him up in a linen and left him. And when in one case they came, the linen was still in the sepulcher. Now, Matthew 28, that's where I needed to get back to. Verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, all of the watch, some of the watch. Well, what's some? How many is some? Now, I don't know if you saw the passion of the Christ like I did, but there was only two. And the average person conclude in their mind for some reason, how many people did you, how many guards did you think were at the tomb? Be honest with yourself. More than two? Anybody thought there was more than two before this moment? One, you, th- you thought it was four? But the average person, including myself, thought it was about two. And how did I come to that conclusion? How did you come to your conclusion? Because it doesn't mention it. Some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all things that were done. Now, the verse, because of the context it is in, leads us to believe as they were going to tell the disciples what they had been instructed, that some of the watch went into the city. And what I mean is the context seems that while the women was going to tell the disciples that the guards went into the city, which would mean that they went into the city during the day while the women who had witnessed the tomb being empty, but there's no indication that their paths crossed. And I'm just simply pointing this out to broaden your thinking because I can't tell you what time they went. All I can tell you and show you is the timeline. All of this happened. And I can assure you that if you think about Yeshua's words, 12 hours in the day and 12 hours in the night, that from the time that that tomb was open to the time that the women came to the tomb, there would have been approximately give or take a few minutes or half an hour 12 hours expired. 12 hours is a lot of time to get stuff done. From the time that tomb opened that Sabbath evening before sunset to the time those women came to that tomb on the first day of the week, early in the morning, you're looking at between 11 and 12 hours that has expired. Plenty of time for the Roman guards to go into the city, receive the money, and began circulating information. Verse four, going back to Matthew 28, these keepers for fear of him that keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. And so I'm going to skip beyond this because we already know that this occurred. Well, since I got it, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Yeshua who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Now I pointed this out because here in Matthew chapter 28, verse four, for some reason in search keepers, when in all the other places is watch. 
And the word keeper here is not the same word as watch. But we know that the keepers and the watch was the same people. The women did not mention seeing the fainted guards at the tomb. The watch consisted of four to 16 Roman soldiers. Some of them came into the city. So again, the question we must ask and try to answer is this. Verse 11 states, now, when they were going, does the verse implies they were going to tell the disciples the guards went into the city? Wait a minute. The verse implies they were going to tell the disciples. Wow, that should be. While the guards went into the city or when they were going to the tomb. See what the verse says while they were going. Now, when they were going, we don't know which direction we assume that they're going to tell the disciples, but it doesn't say who they're going, which direction they're going. You follow what I'm saying? They could have been going to the tomb which seems to be more rational than going to tell the disciples. Because when you look at it, it seems to have a past tense type aorist feel from a Greek perspective. It's kind of like past tense that while they were going, some of the watch came. In other words, while they were going, the watch was already on its way to tell what was going on because think about the time frame. Did they wait 11 hours after the tomb had been rolled away? The earthquake, they fell as dead men. Were they fainted for 11 hours? Or did some time, by the time that tomb was open and the women came, they had already gone into the city while the women was on their way to the tomb. You see, it could be. I can make it as valid of an argument for that as anybody could try to make an argument for the other way around. I hope I laid out the case for you. Peter and the other disciples did not go to Galilee. They went to the tomb after they had been informed by the women. Remember the angel said, tell the disciples to meet in Galilee. Yeshua came, tell the disciples to meet in Galilee. Well, if the women went and told them to meet in Galilee, why would they be going to the tomb? They would go where? To Galilee. But we're going to see that much time expired before they went to Galilee. And I'm going to speed it up a little bit because I'm running out of time. So Peter and the other disciples did not go to Galilee. They went to the tomb after they had been informed by the women. Afterwards, Yeshua appeared to the women, according to John. Verse 1, John chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now, notice it's only one woman, not two, and certainly not four. Another angle. Then she runneth. The focus here is on Mary telling them the information. She runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Yeshua loved and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Where she get that idea from? Because She's not saying that he's resurrected and I saw him. 
At this particular moment, when she runs to tell the disciples, she's under the impression that his body has been moved. They have taken away. Who is they? They've taken him away. They've taken him out of the sepulcher. He's still dead. And we don't know where they put him. This is not the confession of a resurrection or the acknowledgement of a visitation. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. Then the disciples went away again, where? Unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And later we see Yeshua said unto her, because she looked into the sepulcher, saw these angels. And then later Yeshua said to her when she did see him, because she thought he was the gardener, remember? And she repeated her story. Tell me where he is. I'll go get him. And her eyes were open and she recognized it was him. And she cried out, according to the King James Reboni, and fell on him. Now, the idea here is to touch, is to hold on to. And he's saying, no, let me go. I got work to do. Now, based on what he says, touch me not, touch me not. In other words, he's saying to her, don't touch him or don't hold on to him. I'm not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she has seen the Lord and that he has spoken these things to her. Now she's communicating after this event that she's actually seen him. She's no longer under the impression that his body has been taken and moved to another location. Back to chapter 28. Now, there's much more convincing information, which I cut out because already I'm at the 60 minute mark and I got a, I got a little while longer and I want to get the rest of this out. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Now, this is verse 16. They went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Yeshua had appointed them. There's a problem here because Verse 16 comes after 15. The Romans has taken the money and that comes after verse 12 when the women is on their way. Cause remember it says while they were on their way, the guards went into the city. And then after that, it brings us back to verse 16 and the 11 disciples went into the Galilee. There is a swath of time that is unaccounted for here. And if you strictly rely on Matthew chapter 12, you will definitely not be aware you would actually be ignorant of it. Yeshua did not ascend from the mountains of the Galilee because we're going to see that Matthew closes out with them in the Galilee, or at least it appears that way. They go to the Galilee. Well, let me speed it up. Verse 50, Luke 24. He didn't ascend from the Galilee, the mountains of the Galilee. He ascended from the mountains of Olivet beyond Bethany. Now, if you look at Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that he's going to be in the mountain, that father's going to gather his people and bring him to his holy mountain. We know that these are the mountains of, of Zion, Jerusalem, which is not in the Galilee. 
If you understand geography, and this is why we have maps, so that you can see that there's a distance between the south and the north, or the north and the south. And so we know that there is Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, Samaria, which is where the Mount Ebal and Mount um, Gerasim, and then there is the Galilee. So you've got three geographical locations, all with their own mountains. And Isaiah tells us that the gospel is going to come away from where? Jerusalem. Verse 50, Luke 24. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So where is he at? He's out as far as Bethany. Now, if you look at the location of Bethany, Bethany is beyond Mount Olivet. You have to climb up. Mount Olivet is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives at the foot of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Yeshua took his disciples. And we know that that's where he was captured. That's at the foot of Mount Olivet. Bethany is a little ways away and Bethpage, which is where he made his triumphal entry and then came into Jerusalem. Bethany is where Lazarus lived. So when you look at the geography, he ascended from Mount Olivet near Bethany and here Acts 1.12, then returned they, after his ascension, they returned his disciples unto Jerusalem from the mount called what? Olivet. That's where he ascended. Not in the Galilee, but that's where Matthew has us. Verse 17, Matthew. So now they go, they see him in Galilee. Look at what it says. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, at this particular point, some doubted. Before he ascended, there was no doubt. Why? Because he had spent 40 days presenting infallible proof, according to Acts chapter 1. At this point, after the resurrection, there was still doubt amongst the believers. Yeshua rebuked them for doubting the things he had taught them. It is for this reason Yeshua spent 40 days after his resurrection with many convincing proofs that he had actually resurrected. And that's what we find in Acts 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, which is the guy Luke writes to because Luke wrote Acts. It's the same guy he was writing to in Luke chapter 1, Theophilus. Of all that Yeshua began both to do and teach, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them how many days? 40. 40 days. Now, if you look at Matthew, the women came to the tomb. They ran to tell the disciples while they were on the way to tell the disciples to meet him in the Galilee. The guards went into the city. And Matthew leaves us thinking the women told the men to meet him in the Galilee. And so now they went and told him, and then they went to the Galilee where he shows himself. They worship him and ascends. John captures three of those visitations. Sunday evening after his Sabbath resurrection, verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, 
where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews came Yeshua and stood in the midst and said unto them, peace be unto you. Eight days later, after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them because Thomas hadn't seen him. He said, except I see with my own eyes and put my hands in the place where those nails were and in his side where he was speared, then will I believe. So eight days later, Yeshua shows up again and this time Thomas with them. Then came Yeshua, the doors being shut, they still hiding and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Sometime later, John 21, 1, after these things, Yeshua showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Tiberias is also identified in some as the Sea of Galilee. Now they're in the Galilee. This is after some time, after three particular visits. And on this wise, he showed himself. Paul informs us that Yeshua appeared to many of his disciples after his resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how the Messiah died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now this gives us an indication of one of his appearances, possibly they're all gathered together, maybe, but we don't know. He doesn't tell us. He was seen above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So Paul's indication is that before he revealed himself to all of his apostles, which was when he came together and they were all together, that he had appeared to others before. And then, of course, he gets into him being the last one. Verse 18, Matthew 28. And Yeshua came and spake unto them, saying, all power, all power, all power. Now, I, I need, I don't normally do this, but I just need you to say these words with me. All power. Because all power. these are powerful words for me. See, until I got the revelation of these words, I actually thought the devil had some power. And I remember when I was first taught about the baptism of the Holy Ghost and having my private prayer language that when I speak in tongues, the devil can't understand me. So speak in tongues so the devil don't know what you said, because if the devil know what you said, he could thwart your plans. And it got people to thinking, you know, not to tell your plans to other people because the devil might hear it. I mean, just all kinds of silly stuff superstition, fear. But Yeshua said, all power is given unto me. Where? In heaven and where? Where are you? Heaven is in us. All power. You see, until you understand that, you will never understand Satan being under your feet. Because he's given us authority over all the works of the devil. Is there any work of the devil you don't have authority over? Now, I don't have authority over the work of the devil in your life unless you come to me and say, hey, I got a devil messing with me. I've told it to go away, get behind me, and it ain't, it ain't listening. So I need some help in agreement to cast this thing away from me. Well, now you're giving me some authority. But until then, you can hide 
your devilment. See, this is what people do out of shame. If you are ashamed because you don't recognize the authority and the power, and you continue to give over to that authority and power, whether it be in some form of addiction, whether it be in some form of misbehavior, whether it be in perversion, pornography, or lying, or whatever, stealing, or, or whatever, fornicating, committing adultery, because there is no authority or power that the enemy has over you if you've committed yourself to him and you're walking in his authority. You have the authority and power to resist the devil. And the reason why the devil don't flee in some people's lives is because they don't resist him. And the reason they don't resist him is because they're not totally submitted to him. The Bible says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee. He, you don't need my help to get the devil out your life. You just need to follow the instruction. Submit yourself to Jehovah. Resist the devil. And he has to go. Why? Because he has no authority. He has no authority in your life. If you truly want to consider yourself to be the head of your house, then I can tell you something. The only way the devil can get up in your house and cause havoc is you let him. Well, what about my wife? Well, except the strong man be bound. See, before the enemy can even get at your wife, he first have to bind you. If you're standing guard over your house, and you have to admit, because, see, I had to go back and look at some stuff. I had to go back and look at some stuff. <laughs> and I recognize my faults. See, my faults have been, and I'll just put it out there. What causes me to compromise, looking at, if the devil is not following me into my house, one, and the only way he can follow me into my house is I'm out there doing something out there that I shouldn't be doing and I didn't gave place to him. And when I come home, he just come right up on, in there with me. Now, if I'm doing my diligence, then, and the devil's in my house, I got to identify how he got in there if I'm doing my diligence. And it don't take long for a diligent person to figure out how he got in because I recognize how he got in mine. You see, the area of my compromise is my wife. That's where my compromise comes in. When I stand firm, when it comes to my children and my wife comes to me, husbands, y'all know what I'm talking about. Honey, and they'll wear you down. Honey, remember when you was... Remember, you ain't always been saved. They just need some time. You need to be patient. Honey. Honey. And then they make this terrible mistake of siding with them. To where in order to get to your child, you got to go through your wife. You know your wife will leave you over them children. Now wives, you know, they realize their power and their authority. And they misuse that authority because they don't see the ramification of what they're doing because they're in their emotions. And there's nothing more emotional for a woman 
or mother than them children's. They lose their God-fearing mind. Now, I got to go home to my wife after saying this. <laughs> I ain't scared. <laughs> I ain't scared at all. Because in order to walk in that authority, you can't be afraid. If you say you are Torah observant and the Almighty gives you the authority to nullify vows your wife has made, then how does she ever have authority over you? She can't nullify vows you make. Now, and this is not being chauvinistic. It's standing on what is written. The man in his house have to operate in the authority that he has been given and not compromise his authority for his wife. Ask Adam how that work out. Ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> it's not easy to stand. Now the question is, is who do you fear most? God or your wife? And I ain't trying to make no mess here. I'm not trying to make no mess. Don't puff your chest up going, oh, I'm the man. <laughs> you better use wisdom, brother. Stand on the word. Keep you out of it. Don't give place to the devil. Don't get in your flush. When you appeal with the wisdom of his word, you don't have to fight. You don't have to argue. You don't have to get into a shouting match. All you got to do is stand firm. Do your wife have to obey you? No. God will deal with her. You don't have to. You just got to stand aside and let him. But he's not going to deal with her if you don't. And you just better make sure that while you're dealing with her, you're not dealing harshly with her. Because then he ain't hearing you and he's going to deal with you. That's another mistake. You communicate his truth. And if that truth is received, well, that's wonderful. If it's not received, my position is, okay, father, I've stood my ground. Now you got to handle this because I don't know what else to do. But before I can tell him that I got to stand my ground. And the fear of loss, the fear of going to bed and not being able to touch, the fear of having relationships withheld. See, the Bible, the New Testament, the New Testament tells us, hey, wife, your body is not your own. Husband, your body is not your own. You don't have a right to withhold your body from your husband. You don't have a right to withhold your body from your wife. That's New Testament for your non-Torah observing wife or husband. You better know your word and then stand on your word and stay within the parameters of operating in accordance to the authority with the humility and fear of him in the process. I hope I'm making myself clear because some big headed man is going to want to take what Bailey said, run home and try to beat his wife into submission. And that ain't going to work for you. I'm going to tell you that right now. That ain't going to work for you. 
You're going to have to walk in humility and the fear of the Almighty standing on his word. Not by sight, not by feelings, not getting caught up in your emotions, not things working out in the time frame that you, you've put on it. Father, I have to remind me, and I'll just throw this out at you while I'm at it, is that we're the covenant breakers. He's not. See, even when I break covenant, he don't break covenant with me. Let me say that again. Even when I break covenant with him, he don't break covenant with me. And you know what he's saying to me? He says, you see how I am with you? Now you be that way. So if your wife break covenant with you, that don't give you right to break covenant with her. Not as a man of God, now as a religious man, it might. But if you want to be a man of God, you don't break covenant because people break covenants. You stand on the covenant you made because the Almighty does not deal kindly with covenant breakers. You don't have an excuse to break covenant with somebody because they broke covenant. Unless you don't value the covenant you have with your creator. Ouch. Finally, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a little twist on this. Okay? I'm going to give you a little twist. And it's going to take, again, some critical thinking on your part to be able to see where I'm coming from in order to embrace what I'm saying. Or you can reject it. That's totally up to you. For centuries, men have argued if this statement was a formula for baptism. Should we be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or in the name of Yeshua, or for Christians, the name of Jesus? Because that's how they interpret baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, Yeshua didn't baptize anyone. John's testimony is that he's, his baptism is going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit or a baptism of fire. So when you look at Matthew 28, your denominational belief and what you've been taught in your denominational belief is going to either put you on the side of in the name of Jesus or in the name of Yeshua or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost when you baptize. And what have we done? We've cornered the market on this verse and say that this is dealing strictly with water baptism. Water is not mentioned in this verse. So how do we conclude is water baptism? Say what? Well, John said he baptized with water. But the one who's coming after me. So the baptism of water is a baptism of John. If you want to look at it from that perspective, which when Paul found some brothers, he said, what baptism was you baptized of? They said, we were baptized under John. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, Paul and his disciples came to the conclusion that this dealt with water baptism. But when he laid hands on these individuals, they were what? Baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, my apostolic faith brethren taught me, if you're going to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, the right way then you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Because see, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is attached to our sacred anointed baptismal pool. So I'm up in there. 
Apostolic Faith Church getting baptized for the Holy Ghost. Now, when you come up out that water, brother, <laughs> you're going to be thinking in tongues. I couldn't wait to come up out that water. No tongues. I'm in the Holy Sacred Anointed Apostolic Pool. The word name, Anoma. And if you look at number two, besides the universal of proper names, the name is used for everything which the name covers. Everything the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning, hearing, remembering the name, i.e. for one's rank, authority, interest, pleasure, command, excellence, and so on. And so here's how I want you to see the name in this passage. Immerse the nations in Jehovah's name. Immerse the nations in Yeshua. Immerse the nations in the Holy Spirit. How do I explain that? It's simple. When I communicate to people about my father who is in heaven, I'm talking to them about my father who I call Jehovah. Everything I do is motivated by him. Everything I do in word and deed. I do it in the name of Messiah, but I do it unto Jehovah. And so you can't know me and me not communicate and tell you about my father who is in heaven. That's going to be in my conversation. When it comes down to the immersion, if you think about what the prophet said and what Paul alluded to, when a man is to present his wife about, you know, well, let me, Ephesians chapter number what? Six. Remember what Paul talks about presenting your wife, husbands, the washing of the water of the word. There it is. 525 husbands love your wives, even as the Messiah also loved the assembly and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. How is water associated with the word? Because see, you can get baptized and it'll take some of that dirt off you. You can get baptized in water and it appeases your conscience. You can get baptized and you feel good that you have fulfilled what you believed was a commandment to be baptized. And the fact that you've been baptized make you feel good unless you've been baptized in Jesus name. And now you come into the Hebrew roots in the messianic faith and you discard or discredit that baptism. Well, I was baptized in the wrong name. So that baptism don't count. I need to get baptized in the Messiah's name. That's a conscious issue. Whose name did Yeshua get baptized in? Water baptism do not empower you with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit that empowers you. And so you can focus on being baptized in water and be satisfied that you've been baptized in water. But that doesn't empower you. Yeshua told his disciples, wait, and you shall be endued with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, you see why I had to cut all this short, and I'm still over time. But I'm going to finish this up. Immerse the nations in the name of Jehovah. Immerse the nations in the name of Yeshua. 
Immerse them. Immerse them in the, na- the nations in the Holy Spirit. So when I go, I'm going to tell people about Jehovah in Yeshua's name and expect them to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about my Savior. I'm going to talk about who sent my Savior and the purpose my Savior came and what my Savior empowered me to do to go and tell other nations what I have learned from him. And what did he teach? He taught about father. I came in my father's name. I came to do the will of my father. I don't do nothing except my father tells me. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to come. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. You're going to have a counselor. You're going to have a comforter. And this counselor and this comforter is going to be with you. And he's going to show you some stuff. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to guide you in the path of righteousness. He's going to remind you of the things that I talked to you about. And all this you do in my name. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. The interpretation. Teach the nations to observe everything I have taught and commanded about Jehovah. You see, Jehovah sent Yeshua to what? Take a fallen man who had been de- disconnected from the creator and reconcile. The whole purpose, Yeshua is our mediator. He says, Father, humanity, now I showed you how to do this. I got baptized in him. I got baptized by his spirit. I communicated his word. I trained you and I taught you. It empowered you. You went out casting out devils, raising the dead, healing the sick, declaring the gospel of the kingdom. Now you go and do others just like I did you. And you do what I did. You go and make disciples just like I made disciples. You go and teach the nations just like I came to teach you to prepare you to go and teach the nations. And when you go, don't take your church. Don't take your theology. Don't take your denomination. You take what I taught you. The works that I did, you do. The things that I taught you, you teach. Teach the nations to observe everything I've commanded you, even concerning me. Teach the nations to observe everything I've taught and commanded about the Holy Spirit. Don't go forth confused. And there's a lot of folks confused. They pray, Lord Jesus. He said, you pray our father. They're confused. So you teach the people. I'm demonstrating as a man, as a human being in flesh, left glory, power and authority as the son of Elohim. I left it. I came as a man to show you as a man and a woman, how to live in this world with the kingdom in you, the word in you and how to walk in authority and power. You see, when Yeshua was on the earth, he had power and authority over himself. Why? Because father gave it to him. And he empowered his disciples to send them before they were baptized with the Holy Spirit to cast out devils, lay hands on the sick and raise the dead. They hadn't been empowered with the Holy Spirit. 
But before he left, he says, listen, you're going to wait and receive. That was a command. Receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, then. Are y'all with me today? Can I close now? I have to close now because I ran out of. Well, there's a few more slides. Three more, I think. Yeshua's death on the cross did so much more than pay the price for the sins of men. I, I had these in all three of our last teachings at least some of them, and the last two in, in the last teaching. Yeshua demonstrated how to live in the kingdom of heaven as a man on earth. Why? Because the kingdom is within us. We're in the kingdom. The kingdom is in us. Yeshua demonstrated how to please Jehovah through obedience to his commands. Yeshua didn't violate his commands. None of them. He didn't pay the price and die so you could. He said, the works I do, you should do. The things I taught you, you teach. He taught them his commandments. He says, think not that I come to abolish any of his commandments. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill and whoever teach them shall be great in the kingdom. But whoever disobey them and teach others to do it will be called least in the kingdom. She was very specific on what he instructed, what he was called to do. And he didn't deviate from it. Now, Fortunately for him, he didn't have to deal with the issues some of us deal with. He didn't have to deal with the husband. He didn't have to deal with the wife. He didn't have to deal with children. And we have to learn from his word how to navigate those arenas and maintain the integrity of a kingdom-minded person. And he incorporated that in his word. Children, obey your parents. Parents, teach your children. Teach your children. Teach them the things that you're supposed to teach them. Train them up. Raise them up. If you don't teach them his way, they're going to be a heathen. They could be a Christian heathen. They could be a Muslim heathen, Buddhist heathen. They can be whatever kind of heathen they want to be. If they fail to keep the commandments of the creator, they'll just be a religious heathen. So we have a responsibility and we have instructions on how to do it. Yeshua did it. And he's teaching it us, his disciples. So he demonstrated how to please Jehovah through obedience to his commands. And can I say, because this just came to me again, is that even though Yeshua didn't have a wife, some of his disciples did. And I think this is why Paul can tell us, says, listen, he that is married, you got to walk this walk like you're not married. And that in itself takes some navigation, brothers and sisters. We've got to operate in the wisdom of his word on how to successfully do what he's calling us to do without crossing lines, breaking down hedges and creating unnecessary offenses. There are some offenses you can't help, but those offenses are going to come with you walking in his truth because his word can be an offense to some. If you're dealing with someone that you love and care for and they say to you, I'm spiritual, but do you read the Bible? Well, I'm spiritual. I know God. I don't have to read that book. Then, you know, you're talking to someone who doesn't have the knowledge of the book. That's just a given. If this person happens to be your spouse, if it happens to be your siblings, if it happens to be your children, you're going to have to figure out if you're going to be in relationship with these individuals, how to navigate the word 
and deal with them in a respectful, honorable way that is pleasing to the Almighty. And I can tell you, it may be grieving to you because there's some things that you might want to say and some things that you might want to do that in order to say and do them, you're going to grieve His Spirit. We're constantly dealing with this war between the humanity flesh and the spirit man whose goal and desire is to please Jehovah. And that requires submission to Him, death to self, continually on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, and sometimes minute by minute and second by second. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.